This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Poor diet is now the leading cause of early death in men and number two in women across the globe. So the way our diets have changed is just so terrible and it's having such an impact on people's health. And at the same time, mental disorders account for the leading global burden of disability. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Food and mood is the topic of the podcast this week, where we're going to be talking about eating for mental health with Professor Felice Jacker, Director of the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University in Australia. This is a re-release of the episode from a couple of years ago, but just as relevant. Me and the team are still putting together a collection of podcasts from the recent conference on personalized and integrative medicine that you are going to absolutely love. But in the meantime, we're diving into the archives where we are finding gems of podcasts, many of which come from 2020 and before. And on this episode with Professor Felice, we talk about her book, Brain Changer, which is all about how diet can save your mental health and tells the story of why we need to consider our food as the basis of our brain and mental well-being throughout our lives. Professor Felice Jacker first came on my radar when I heard of the SMILES trial, uh, something that we've talked about a number of times in the podcast, and which we'll talk about in this episode as well. And she's also the founder and president of the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research, ISNPR. And if you check out their website, which I will link to in the show notes on thedoctorskitchen.com, you'll be able to find out when their next conferences are. She's also pioneered 
a highly innovative program of research that examines how individuals' diets and other lifestyle behaviors interact with the risk for mental health problems. Today, we talk about where mental health begins, junk food and its impact on the adolescent brain in particular, which is quite worrying, stress and its impact on the immune system, the SMILES trials I mentioned, as well as the need to include quality fats in your diet. You're going to find this episode fascinating. Uh, It's a great uh, archived episode that I think a lot of people perhaps haven't listened to as uh, we recorded this a few years ago before the podcast got to the size it is today. And remember, you can find all this information and more on the show notes at thedoctorskitchen.com. You can also check out the app, which you can download for free and also try a free trial for 14 days. Android users, I'm sorry, I am working really hard. I promise you to build the Android version right now. The team are working super hard on that. So hopefully it'll be coming out later on this year. And in the meantime, you can sign up to the newsletter, Eat, Listen, Read, where every week I send you mindfully curated content including a recipe that you can eat, something to listen to, something to you can read, and also things that you can watch if you're lucky, as well as a nice little joke at the end that a lot of you have indicated you really do enjoy. For now, please enjoy my conversation with Felice. I hope to do another podcast with her at some point in the future. Uh, But in the meantime, I think you'll find this conversation super valuable. It was so delicious. <laughs> it's my perfect meal. <laughs> yeah. Good, good. I mean, um, we've talked quite a bit about uh, your book already and, you know, all the different topics. One of the things that we, we didn't mention was exactly what the Smiles trial was. Yeah. Um, so would you mind just telling us a little, a little bit briefly about what that, what that sure. entailed? Um, and also just the, the, the reason that we did it. So, um, you know, I discussed my PhD as being the study, the first study to look at the link between diet quality and mental health in... Um, and then we went on and we did a lot more research in different age groups and different countries and different cultures. And, of course, other people were also doing research. And so by sort of 2012, we had this really quite robust evidence base linking the two things. But you can't assume that correlation is the same as causation. You know, And with these uh, epidemiological studies, you're limited in knowing whether one thing is actually causing another. So you need to do randomised control trials or you need to do interventions experiments and so we wanted to try and answer that 64 million dollar question that people would ask us you know i'm depressed should i change my diet Mm -hmm. and we didn't have any evidence one way or another that that would be a useful strategy so me being really naive and you know fresh out of my phd (laughs) i went i can design a a randomized (laughs) control trial and managed after a couple of years to get the funding for it although they cut the budget by 36%. So we were doing everything on the smell of an oily rag. It was really, really challenging. Why did they cut the funding? What was the... Oh, that's just what the National Health and Medical Research (laughs) does. (laughs) So, um, but, you know, we limped along and we managed to to do this trial. It took three and a half years to recruit everyone. It was very slow. But basically what we did was we recruited people who had moderate to severe clinical depression, which is, of course, really common, very, very disabling. And we randomly assigned them to receive either social support, which we already know is really helpful for people with depression, or dietetic support, so nutritional support with a clinical dietitian. And so for three months, people came in either weekly or fortnightly and saw either a research assistant to do the social support thing 
or uh, a clinical dietitian. And the dietitian worked with each participant in the dietary group to help them to make positive changes to their diet in a way that was achievable, feasible, you know, not too challenging. And so, you know, to increase the amount of vegetables and fruits, to increase the diversity of plant foods, different types of beans and legumes, and often people hadn't even eaten legumes to start yeah. with, mm. getting people eating nuts and seeds. You know what it is, you know, like yeah, even yeah. now when I mention the word legumes, people kind of look at me funny and be like, oh, like you know, beans, chickpeas, lentils, uh, lentils mung beans, all yeah, that kind yeah. Of stuff. yeah, peasant food. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, peasant food. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, of course, to reduce the, the junk and processed foods, to reduce the sweets and the fried foods and the packaged foods and those sorts of things and the soft drinks. And so over a three-month period, people were supported to do that. And then at the end, we looked to see how everyone was doing in terms of their depression scores, and we found a really profound difference between the groups. And uh, as I noted, you know, the more people changed their diet, the better off they were. And it was it was quite a stunning finding. We didn't expect to see a big difference between the groups because we had a quite a small sample size. But then uh, a few months later, another group in South Australia did a very similar thing but in a larger study in a group-based setting and where they help people to learn how to cook and how to shop and you know how and eating together and all the rest of it and the the comparison group was a social group and they were really popular you know they're off to the movies and playing games and doing all sorts of fun things so both groups the people really enjoyed it but again we showed uh, or they showed that there was a much greater improvement in depression in those who got the dietary support and who changed their diets yeah, I mean that's I mean it's phenomenal. I remember um, hearing about it because it was literally everywhere. Yeah, it was like all plastered all over the newspapers. You got some amazing coverage. Was that just purely out of you know it, it growing virally, or did did you make a concerted yeah. effort to put well, it out there? I, I, I write a pretty mean press release. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not blowing my own horn or anything. But yeah, I was so. You know, we were kind of so stunned by yeah. the findings and just the, the size of the difference. Yeah. And um, there just was something in the air. We knew that there was a real appetite for this. A lot of the work that I'd done, because I've led so many of, you know, the first studies in adults and in yeah. children and adolescents, the first study looking at brain plasticity, it often gets a lot of media. Yeah. And to my mind, if you want, an, you know, knowledge to be transmitted through the community very quickly, you can't wait for governments to write Absolutely. you know um, public health messages or you have to get it out there and to me um, always the context is that because of the the massive changes to our global food environment and because of the activity of big food poor diet is now the leading cause of early death in men mm. and number two in women across the globe mm. so the way our diets have changed is just so terrible and it's having such an impact on people's health and at the same time, mental disorders account for the leading global burden of disability. So the fact that the two things are linked is really important. Yeah. And I wanted to get that message out there. So, but I, even I was pretty amazed at yeah, yeah, <laughs> the impact yeah. that it had. And, you know, we ended up in the Wall Street Journal and NBC and CNN, like just all over the, uh, the news. And it continues. I mean, that was 2017. And now in 2019, we're still... You know, turning up in articles, the New York Times just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you know, it, it, it continues to reverberate, which yeah. is great. One of the things that I really love about your book is the bravery by which you confidently talk about your own personal experiences mm. with mental health, um, both uh, your, your daughter and your, your personal experience. Mm. And that kind of ties in with that maternal and paternal responsibility for mental health yeah. or, or health during conception. Yeah. 
Um, I find that topic absolutely fascinating. Would you mind just going into a little bit more depth about... Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, consumption? like many, many, many people, I had a long history of what we call common mental disorder. So anxiety disorder probably manifested in childhood. Yeah. That's when they often do. And then by early adolescence, I was starting to experience panic attacks, but also then clinical depression. And I had many episodes throughout my adolescence and really quite severe. Now, of course, that's not uncommon. And I had a very strong family history. My father had had very severe major depression with psychosis. So had both of his parents. So the genetics were playing a really big role there as well. And, you know, I'm very open about this because I don't see why we should not be talking about mental health in the same way we'd be talking about a physical health condition. And uh, similarly with treatment, you know, reducing stigma. Um, But when my first daughter, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, normally I'd eat a a pretty healthy diet, but I had just such severe, awful morning sickness that it was like having this massive hangover. And I just couldn't even look at a vegetable and I ate, you know, all the wrong things for that first few weeks. One and of my best friends is actually going through that at the moment. Yeah. And she's a massive healthy eater and she can't mm. look at broccoli. No, no. She just can't. Oh, it's really weird. Yeah. It's like all you want is chips and ice cream. <laughs> yeah. That's literally her diet. Oh, yeah. I know. So, and, but also, of course, I was a really anxious, you know, first time parent. And um, there were lots of reasons why my eldest daughter might have been born being quite anxious herself. Uh, and we have no idea whether the food had any. Um, input into it but certainly she experienced um, a somewhat similar trajectory to me in that she certainly developed panic disorder when her early teens and some depression not nearly as bad as mine thank goodness but um, we just don't know whether you know what I did or didn't do in pregnancy plays a role in that but the point I make in the book and I think this is critical is that all of us as parents have enough things to feel guilty about and we're doing the best that we can And the key thing is that the environment needs to support healthy choices. So if you go out every single day and all you see is junk food purveyors and you go and fill up your car with petrol and all you see is soft drinks and packaged food and and sweets and things like that and, and these foods are so heavily marketed, they are everywhere and we are designed as humans to want those high energy foods and they interact with the reward systems in the brain. And then, of course, people have kind of forgotten how to cook and we're busy and all sorts of reasons why we may choose the wrong foods. Mm. And um, the this is where the food environment has to change to make healthy eating the easiest, the cheapest, yeah. the most socially acceptable, the yeah. most heavily marketed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, teaching people the basics the of basic cooking of again. Cooking, yeah. Mm. And you talk actually about um, junk food and its impact, particularly on adolescent brains as well, yeah. and how they may have less ability to say no to these things because of the impact on our reward system. That's right. Yeah. What is, um, what, so what is um, your sort of uh, idea for how we can actually improve adolescent health through food? Because at the moment, particularly in this country, I'm not too sure if it's the same in Australia but chicken shops uh, fast food takeaways uh, all the major sort of fast junk food brands they surround schools they, right. they literally like if you yeah. look at a map you can see that they populated around schools they, they're directly targeting whether it's intentional or not yeah. that's where they are um, how are we how are we going to get it, it makes me furious I think we yeah. just uh, the first instance and I can really only talking uh, talk about Australia and not other jurisdictions because I don't know what the planning laws are like but in Australia Local communities don't have the power to say no to that because the planning laws happen at the state level. So we need to give communities and schools the power to say, no, we don't want that in um, 
close proximity. Uber Eats is becoming a really big issue because <laughs> yeah. then it actually doesn't matter where yeah. these things yeah. are. They can yeah. come anywhere. Um, but, you know, in Australia, so around the world, as I said, poor diet, the leading cause of early death, responsible for by 2030, according to the WHO, at least $30 trillion worth of health costs, and that's without factoring in all the mental health and, you know, things like dementia and those sorts of things. Um, and yet governments have done almost nothing to change the status quo because big food is so powerful and their, their ability to lobby and the money behind them is just massive. But in Australia, there's at least the beginning of a discussion about adopting a whole lot of public health policy recommendations from uh, the people working, particularly in obesity prevention. Now, to my mind, sometimes it's problematic if you make the whole conversation about obesity yeah, yeah. because there's a few reasons for that. One is that once you've put on weight, it's very, very difficult to get it off and keep it off. So people often give up. If they think the, the only reason they have to eat healthily is to avoid being fat and they are fat anyway, they go, well, I might as well just eat the burgers. Yeah, and there's a physiological reason behind that as well because yeah, your body absolutely. will defend that weight set point because it feels as if it's going into starvation mode. Yeah. And so that's why it upregulates your, uh, your satiety levels. Um, so it, it reduces your satiety levels and you, it will continue to get to more get hungry. To, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah, and, you know, you put um, somebody with obesity in an MRI scanner and show them pictures of food and their brain lights up like a Christmas tree. Um, interestingly, that's lost almost immediately after bariatric surgery. I think that's very, that's very interesting. Yeah, and they don't know why or how that works. But um, the other thing about obesity, certainly in relation to mental and brain health, mm. is that that relationship between diet quality and mental health in all of the research we've done is quite independent of obesity. It's quite mm. independent of body weight. Now, we know that depression prompts weight gain. We know that uh, being overweight can increase the risk of depression, probably through inflammation. But the relationship that we see is independent of that. In the SMILES trial, just as an example, the average BMI was about 30, and that didn't change. No one changed their weight because of what, the diet. What time period was the SMILES trial again? Over a three-month period. Okay, fine, yeah, yeah, so people didn't, yeah. and it wasn't a weight loss diet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was about improving the quality of your mm. diet, and I think that's a really powerful message is that don't worry about your weight. That'll yeah. take care of itself because if you start feeding your gut and yeah. feeding yourself, your brain, mm. with good food, you'll start to feel better. Mm. You'll start to naturally regulate the amount of food that's going in. You'll start to want to do more exercise and all of these good things will flow. And if you lose a bit of weight, fantastic. Yeah. But if not, don't worry about it because you are doing the very best thing for your long-term health. Yeah, that's music to me. I mean, in my first book, I remember uh, the, the paragraph that I wrote about how healthy eating um, and what you should be striving for is independent of weight loss. If you yeah. go for weight loss, you're look, you're not looking at the whole picture. If you're just trying to adopt healthy habits and behaviors, you'd be, you'd be surprised at all the other healthy um, uh, aspects of, of wellness that will come to you. Um, yeah. One of the things that you talk about uh, in your book is um, uh, some sort of like fad diets and supplementation, and that kind of stuff. One thing that really stood out to me was um, the suggestion in the literature that a keto diet might be um, suitable or m may have some benefits for schizophrenia. So a keto diet, just for those who are listening, is one where you have predominantly fats in your diet. You, you mm -hmm. consume a lot of your energy and your calories from fats rather than carbohydrates or protein. It's a very extreme diet. Um, it's very uh, restrictive. Um, 
there are some clinical applications for epilepsy. But I wanted to get your understanding of what potentially could be the mechanism behind why it might be useful for schizophrenia and whether that's purely because of better metabolic control and glycemic control that we can achieve perhaps through some other less extreme measures. Yeah, yeah. I have to say I'm not a fan of the ketogenic Mm -hmm. diet. It's enormously concerning to me that it's promoted so heavily by so many diet gurus on the basis of extremely scanty cherry-picked evidence. (laughs) Um, And, you know, really when you drill right down, it's because people think that they can lose weight and it's very heavily promoted by the bodybuilders and you know people who are very fixated on their appearance based on everything we know about the gut it would be really bad for the gut because the gut and does not like high fat and the gut really doesn't like low fiber and that's what a ketogenic diet is however there are um, some clinical applications so in epilepsy there's a quite a large proportion of people with treatment resistant epilepsy that will respond to a ketogenic diet. It's an incredibly strict diet. It's a really awful diet uh, and people struggle to stay on it long term. And it can have a lot of negative health impacts and they know that from people with epilepsy. But colleagues of ours have done a lot of animal research and they think that it may be of use in psychosis, like we're talking about quite a serious mental disorder. And there's been a few case studies of people with psychosis who have been put on a ketogenic diet and have had a reduction in their symptoms. Now, because these happened in the States, we don't know if that's just because they stopped feeding them junk food or, you know, like there's a whole lot of reasons why that might have happened. Um, But one thing we do know about psychosis and schizophrenia is that many people with those conditions have inbuilt uh, problems with glucose metabolism. They're not, uh, you know, they don't deal with glucose in the same way that someone without that condition uh, does. So we're hoping to generate some empirical data on this. So the study, and it's going to start in the next couple of months, will be conducted in an inpatient unit in Finland. And the reason it's going to be in Finland is because in this hospital, they already have patients with epilepsy who are in, in there for treatment. And so the hospital menu has the ketogenic diet as a um, you know part of its option. protocol oh, right. yeah. Okay, yeah and then also these young people with schizophrenia psychosis they're in there for a period of time they can't get out and there's no cafeteria <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if i'm told this uber eats it just doesn't happen <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so basically it's almost the only way that we're ever going to be actually able to test this yeah um So I'm very interested, but even if we do see that there's a possible benefit to people's psychotic symptoms, again, we don't know if that's because we've removed things from the diet that they may be reacting badly to. We're very interested in the possible role of food sensitivities in people with psychosis. We think maybe a small proportion of people have because of, and this goes back to the gut, some fundamental issues with the gut that could go right back to the start of life that they don't deal as well with a whole lot of um, different dietary inputs. So removing potential food allergens from their diet may also have a benefit. So we want to test that as well. But what we are doing, and I think this is going to be really, really interesting, is we're doing a very detailed investigation of the impact of the on the gut of a ketogenic diet. Now, this is our modified keto diet that has... Uh, less saturated fat, more mono and polyunsaturated fat, avocados and nuts and fish and that sort of thing. But it's still a really strict ketogenic diet. And we're going to take lots of poo samples and lots of blood samples 
from uh, about 10 people and really track that in great detail uh-huh. over a month to see what happens to the gut because based on everything we know it's going to be really nasty for the gut and anything that's bad for the gut is going to be bad for you yeah i've I've read there may be adaptation we don't know yeah yeah and i've I've heard of some adaptations looking at a healthier keto diet not that i think there is a healthier version um but uh i've come across some studies that a keto diet is the equivalent to having a round of antibiotics in terms of what it does to your microbiota yeah so that's something to always Oh, look, I just came across a new study, and I don't know how I missed it because it was published a few months ago now, Mm. but it was published in Oslo. It's a really important study. When you look at the ketogenic diet and the the health, you know, what people are purporting it does to to reduce um, blood glucose and all of those sorts of things, we really don't know whether that's just because people have lost weight Mm. and you get a lot of these health benefits in the short term when you lose weight. This study in Oslo, it took uh, more than 30 young adults, healthy adults in the healthy weight range. So they were really healthy, they were nice and slim, doing all the right things, and they put them on a keto diet for three weeks. Now, what happened to their blood lipids is just extraordinary, particularly because there was such pronounced variation. So they all got exactly the same food, but LDL cholesterol increased between 5% up to 107%. So in some people, it just went off the scale. Mm. Even more concerning, there were two really quite serious adverse events, um, myocardiopathy and then an autoimmune thyroiditis. Is that right? Yes, autoimmune thyroiditis. Two young, healthy people within three weeks. In fact, that happened really quickly, within a week or so. Yeah, you can almost understand why that might happen as well because if you're giving an insult to your gut microbiota and that's Mm. inherently involved in your immune regulation and you have a patient that has a propensity toward autoimmune uh, disease because of a genetic predisposition, then you're essentially lighting the fire yeah. uh, with a keto diet. That's right. And it just blows my mind that people are advocating this as a sort of diet that cures cancer yeah, and, and, you know, the yeah. whole works. It's it's really, I think, unethical because mm. at this point we do not have the data to say that this is a safe thing. Some people may respond really well to it, mm. but others are not going to respond well. And what this study showed was that um, – some people experienced a really massive increase in their LDL cholesterol, mm. which we know is a profound risk factor yeah. for uh, heart problems, mm. no matter what the, the conspiracy theorists <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the diet gurus say. There's so many things that I wanted to chat to you about regarding the immune system and meta-inflammation. We touched on inflammation um, earlier when we were cooking, um, but I think you've got a really nice analogy for explaining what inflammation is and what meta-inflammation or low-grade chronic inflammation is and how that relates to, to mental health. Yeah, well, I mean, based on what we know, and I'm not an immunologist, um, you know, if you, if you have an injury or a severe virus, your immune system springs into action. And the little messengers that are part of that whole immune response, these proteins are called cytokines. And I mean, there's a whole lot of different ones. And basically, they run around and make sure that things happen and that you get healed, hopefully, if your immune system's working well. But what you don't want is this those cytokines hanging around over the long term. But what we know is that there are a lot of things in our Western life that really prompt this low-grade inflammation, this systemic inflammation where these cytokines, it's like your immune system is on low-grade alert all the time. And they're things like not having enough sleep and sedentary behaviours and smoking and 
like a vitamin D and stress and all of these things. But of course, diet is a really big part of it. We know that a healthy diet that's high in plant foods and whole grains, etc., um, prompts a reduction in inflammation. Then we know Western diets increase inflammation. But of course, inflammation doesn't just happen in your body, it happens in your brain yeah. as well. Well, this um, is a relatively new recognition, right? That yeah. inflammation and the cytokines can cross the blood brain barrier. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I'm not an immunologist, so I don't want to go into too much detail there. But there's um, all sorts of new knowledge coming out of the field that I think is really interesting. Um, but basically, you know, the driver of all of this, so we, we know about the immune system and its role in prompting depression. And we know this from a whole number of different studies and different ways of coming at the research. And we know that brain plasticity is involved in mental health and that diet influences mental health. But what we now know is that the gut and the microbiota that live in the gut play a key role in all of those things. So they're very, it's very, very important. It's like the heart of your immune system, yeah. your gut. Uh, it also influences the health of your brain, the integrity of your blood-brain barrier, your brain plasticity, all of these things, um, as well as your body weight and your metabolism, etc. Now, it's a very new area, and it has to be said that most of what we know comes from animal studies. So we have to be careful in extrapolating too much. And we're also really struggling with the methodologies you know, like, what does this mean? Just yeah. because there's a bacteria in there, like, what is that good? Is it bad? Yeah. And then we're finding out that bacteria can do all sorts of different things. And sometimes they can be baddies or goodies, depending yeah. on who else is in the zoo and, yeah. you know, yeah, how they're yeah. working together. So it's horribly complicated. But there are some basics that we're pretty sure about. Mm. And um, the first thing is that the gut bacteria, their primary role is to break down dietary fiber. Mm. So the dietary fiber that your human enzymes can't break down that's their job and they break down the dietary fiber so that's just in the things like the beans and legumes and plant foods and um whole grain all the stuff we've just eaten and when they do that they produce a whole range of what are called metabolites many many different ones and we're only just starting to figure out uh, about some of them the short chain fatty acids have been looked at quite extensively Short-chain fatty acids interact with pretty much every cell in your body through these G-protein-coupled receptors, and they influence how your genes behave. Um, they are very important in the immune system and the health of your gut lining. It should have a nice thick mucosal layer. That's really important in uh, having good immune health. There's many things that can break down that layer, and then you get this what's called metabolic endotoxemia, where you get... Um, these pro-inflammatory things getting out of the gut and into the bloodstream. Um, but the gut bacteria do so many things. They synthesize vitamins. They synthesize neurotransmitters. They also prompt the synthesis of neurotransmitters. And we don't know that those neurotransmitters actually get into the brain. We do know that more than 90% of serotonin is actually produced in the gut, but it may not cross the blood-brain barrier. But those neurotransmitters do signal to the brain via the vagus nerve, the gut-brain axis. But the bacteria also control how much serotonin is produced by uh, the metabolism of tryptophan, and they, they're in charge of that. So there's a whole lot of different ways by which we think uh, the gut bacteria interact with the brain and behavior and we're just starting to really do the studies in humans to try and unpick all of that. Yeah. But it's very new. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, a lot of people kind of jump the gun with a few things that mm. you probably mentioned, right? So tryptophan, uh, specific types of uh, dietary fibers, and a lot of spin-off supplementation. Yeah. Sort of, 
uh, practices have, have come about. You were just telling me before the pod about how you were just at a recent conference and you came across some really interesting research looking at which supplements or nutraceuticals may have benefit and which don't. And, and you were saying it's pretty... Pretty <laughs> it's thin quite, evidence, pretty thin, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. um, colleagues of mine have done uh, just recently a, a, a mega-analysis, which mm. is like a meta-analysis of all the yeah. meta-analyses. <laughs> so it basically brings together everything we know from randomised control trials about the impact of supplements, nutritional mm. supplements in psychiatry. And pretty much the, the evidence is pretty limited, um, EPA, which is part of the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids like fish oil, seems to be helpful for people with clinical depression if they have high levels of inflammation, which is about half of people with clinical depression. So EPA, yes, tick, but again, short-term, it's not long-term, short-term. Methylfolate, it's a form of folate that has some pretty good evidence. And again, it's during the acute phase. It's when people are depressed. And what happens, of course, when you have many different sorts of medical conditions, but including depression, your immune system is activated. So you have more inflammation. And what that inflammation does is it kind of burns up your nutrients yeah. in a way. You get this sequestration of nutrients and you, you, your nutrient levels drop and you also get oxidative stress. And that interferes with the, um, the long chain omega-3 fatty acids in the brain cells because they make up an important part of the brain of the neuronal wall. So that's why I think the EPA seems to be useful because it can bring that back and same with the folate. Mm. Um, there's some evidence for something called NAC, N-acetylcysteine, okay. mm. which is a we precursor. That medicine. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. And I think, again, it's something that's short-term. I think it, it, it has some evidence for efficacy in mm. schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. I wouldn't be taking it over the long term. Right, okay. Um, I think that it uh, can break down the mucosal layer. I'm not mm -hmm. sure, but that's oh, what I've read. Uh -huh. And um, What's the mechanism by which an anesthetic might be working? I don't do know. I okay. don't know. Yeah. I'd need to look into it further. But um, in an emergency, we use it for uh, paracetamol overdose. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. And it's great for that in a short term. Yeah, short term. term. Yeah. But yeah, it's not right. something that... Uh, I would be taking long-term. Gotcha. And this is the thing. When you take a supplement, you're not taking it with all the other cofactors and things that you should be this consuming. Thing, yeah. I don't take supplements. I don't mm. actually trust them. Mm. Ever since I found out that uh, antioxidant supplements, so vitamin C or vitamin E, yeah. you take them before exercise yeah. and you lose a whole lot of the benefits of exercise because yeah. it interferes with this whole really complex processes. Yeah. I remember coming across that actually uh, because vitamin C, particularly amongst the um, sort of physio or the um, personal training community, has been thought of like a no-brainer after exercise because it's yeah. an anti-inflammatory. But what you're doing is blunting the benefits of exercise, which lead to ultimately shearing of your muscles and inflammation. And it's that, it's that little bit of low-grade inflammation that actually leads to resilience of the body over That's time. Right. Um, it's almost like the plant hormetic effect. I'm fascinated yeah. by this theory of like, you know, a little Hormesis. bit of bad is yeah, 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 good yeah. for you in the long run. Um, so that's interesting. So no vitamin yeah. C or vitamin I don't. I mean, I'll take, take a bit of vitamin D in winter time, yeah. but I do try and get it from the sun if I can, and I'm Australian, so yeah, I get lucky. to do that. <laughs> uh, we, are, we have recommendations to take vitamin D3 now um, in the winter months, but uh, as you've experienced our summer in June, it, yeah, it's yeah. not always uh, sunny over here. So, yeah, I think vitamin D is pretty pretty important for, for people in the UK. Uh, yeah. But yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's about the only thing yeah. that I take. I just don't. I've never taken supplements. Yeah. Probiotics, you know, there's the evidence is pretty mixed, and I yeah. would much rather be getting 
uh, fermented foods into yes. me. Yep. And I think fermented foods is really interesting because they've been part of traditional diets forever. There's a lot of misunderstandings about fermented foods. So to, say if you took kombucha, for example, fermented tea, and people will say, oh, but all the bacteria are dead because they've eaten all of the, the sugar substrate they've, um, and now they've died off because they don't have anything else to eat. So there's no point taking it. Well, actually, that's not how it works. So what happens is during the fermentation process, those bacteria are producing all of these metabolites. So many, they're called biogenics, and they are, they're multitudinous, and we don't even know what most of them do. But um, we also know that the bacteria can still have bioactive effects, even if they're dead. So I think fermented foods are great for a whole range of reasons. We're really keen to test them in clinical trials, yeah. and that's something we're working on at the moment. Mm. And also, they're just delicious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I just love. I, I make my own kefir. Yeah. Yeah. I love kombucha. I have it yeah. every day. And do you have your own like? So you make your own kefir at home with it? Yeah, yeah. Own, with like, the, the grains, uh, so simple, so cheap. Yeah. And just so tasty. And then I make smoothies with the kefir. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. My husband not so keen. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get him there. Yeah. I've heard of this term uh, banded around actually called psychobiotic. Biotics, um, which are yeah. um, probiotics that potentially have the impact or can have the impact yeah. on, on mood. But I think that you're right. It's a fascinating area of research, very, very much in its infancy at the moment. Mm. Um, so at the moment, it's just probiotic foods. Yeah, and uh, there is some really interesting data, though. There was a fantastic study Bob Yoken's group um, published probably about six months ago where they, they took, and this is to me the most compelling study so far in psychiatry, patients with bipolar disorder, like serious bipolar disorder, who had been hospitalized with mania. When they came out of hospital, they were randomly assigned to get either probiotics or placebo. And then they were followed over time to see how long it would take for them to go back into hospital with mania. And there was a really big difference. The ones on the probiotics took a lot longer to go back into hospital. Gotcha. So that's very cool. But the psychobiotics, so Professor John Cryan yes, and yeah, Ted Danan, Ireland, right? great yeah, yeah. buddies of mine, and oh, they're really yes. the world experts, yeah. you know, and they've got a great book called Psychobiotics, yeah. which is all about this. Um, but they would say, look, at 99% of the bacteria, that, the strains that they've tested in animal models don't do diddly squat. Mm, yeah. But there are some but that are. are some, yeah. And I, I do think that there's probably huge potential there. Mm. It's just that we're not there yet. And going and getting some probiotics off the shelf and yeah. consuming them is probably not particularly worthwhile unless maybe you've if you've had antibiotics it's certainly not going to hurt exactly but yeah. i would be getting the kefir and the exactly, butcher yeah. and the tempeh and the sauerkraut and everything yeah. else into me it's something i actually tell patients whenever i give antibiotics so look there's no evidence behind a probiotic supplement it's unlikely to do any harm i'd prefer you get it from probiotic foods um, but we're just not there yet and there's so many different variations as well right i mean depending on your genetics your current state of your microbiota whether you're dysbiotic or not um it's 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 almost like the keto diet for some people it's great for other people absolutely deadly yeah. um and potentiates in some cases autoimmune conditions yeah. which you talk about in your book as well yeah. which i was i was quite pleased to to read about um and also uh, there was a study that you um, you mentioned. It was something that I, I wrote an essay on recently. I think it was O'Keefe and colleagues, and they did a crossover study 
um, where they took people who are still living in Africa and South Africa. Oh, I think it's it was one of my favourite studies. It's a fantastic study. It's just yeah. amazing. And then they crossed over the diet with uh, Africa people of African origin who were living in America and yeah. therefore eating a Western diet. And yeah. They crossed them over for two weeks and they found profound changes right yeah that's right so um you know we know that people who are living more traditional lifestyles have a much healthier gut microbiome more diversity more short chain fatty acids all of the stuff and they compared south africans living a rural traditional lifestyle to african americans having the sad the Mm. standard american diet (laughs) and of course their gut looked really kind of awful and had higher levels of inflammation and these markers that we know risk factors for um bowel cancer Mm. But that was the cool thing. They swapped their diets for two weeks and the poor rural South Africans, their, you know, their gut health went down the toilet, yeah. so to speak, and yeah. the inflammatory markers went up, but it got better in the African-Americans. That's so powerful. That's saying in two weeks you can have profound changes on your, in your health mm. by just changing what you're feeding your gut microbes absolutely yeah. yeah it's incredible that and so to to sum i don't because there's so much information packed in your book i mean you talk about uh dairy gluten specific diets you, you even put the details of the modi diet that you put in um that you use in the smiles trial if we were to categorize what things that we need to be doing for mental health um what sort of things so we talked about whole grains and, and fiber mm-hmm. um which we we had in our lunch today yeah. um what other things are you looking at and, and fatty fatty fish um yeah. uh, supplement or potential supplements but. look i think it's really important to understand that you don't have to get this perfectly yeah. right and you know i go very much for the 80 20 rule in australia uh average like teenagers are having on average seven serves of junk food a day Seven, seven serves wow less than half a percent of australian children and adolescents are getting the recommended intake of veggies and legumes less wow. than five percent of adults in america something like 60 percent of that average energy intake is coming from ultra processed foods wow. so this is not just a problem of people who are poor or uneducated mm. it is a massive and a global scale so if you moved your diet to be 80% pretty good, yeah. you know, you would be doing so much better yeah. than the vast majority of the population. And then that still allows for, you know, I love ice cream. Yeah. Friday night, yeah. ice cream time. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I like chocolate. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not super, super strict and it's not prescriptive. You've got to give me an ice cream recommendation for Melbourne. I, I know Melbourne's like a hotbed for new restaurants. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, Messina. Messi- yeah, yeah, so we have a Messi- yeah, we, we have a Messina, a bunch of Messinas in Sydney. Yeah. Did it originate in Melbourne or Sydney? No, actually, okay, not well, sure. But I also enough. love, um, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, no, there's many, especially yeah. around the Carlton, yeah. <laughs> around the Italian area. Yeah. So much good gelati. I know, I love ice cream. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, 80% of your, your diet, you're just going for whole foods and mm. it doesn't have to be that difficult or complicated, you know, porridge for breakfast, mm. yay. Yeah. You know, mm. a bit of Greek yogurt with some oats on top and whatever, yay. Yeah. Um, Lunch like we had today, just, you know, good quality sourdough bread, mm. um, rivitas, whatever. Mm. Mm. The sorts of recommendations we gave in the SMILES trial were dead simple. They were like a, you know, rivita type biscuit yeah. uh, and a tin of tuna yeah. and some sliced salad. Yeah. Bang yeah. it on. That's yeah. It's cheap. It's easy. It's quick. Yeah. Um, I use... And for that simple diet to have that dramatic effect. Yeah. Over three it, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. So you introduce fiber. Fiber mm. is key. That is number one. Polyphenols, mm. you know, come in all the colourful fruits and vegetables. They yeah. seem to be really powerful. Mm. There's some really interesting studies showing that if you get rodents and you put half of them on a high-fat diet and the rest on a normal diet, the ones who are getting the high-fat diet, of course, they get really fat. Yeah. 
and they put on lots of weight. But if you take a third group and you give them that high fat diet, but you also give them polyphenols in the form of, you know, blueberry supplementation or whatever, they only put on half as much weight. Wow. So that's the only thing that's different. Yeah. And it mitigates weight gain. So you've got to look after your gut. Yeah. Your gut, And I think that makes it easier for people. They get told that they should eat their fruits and veggies, yeah. but they don't really know why. And they think, oh, well, maybe one day I'll have a heart attack. But that's yeah. off in the future. Yeah. But and if often you say, people reduce like, the berries, for example, just to its uh, polyphenolic components, yeah. so the flavanols and stuff like that. But actually, you know, it's the fiber. It's all the other parts. All the other things the that we haven't even started to measure exactly. yet. This is what's so mm. powerful about plants. Mm. Um, but just this knowledge that if you feed your gut, you're going to be doing good and you don't need to know mm. the detail of which bacterial strain is doing what. You just need to know that your gut bugs need fibre to mm. do what they do. If you don't have enough fibre, they can't do what they do. You just need to know that lots of different types of fibre and different types of plant food help lots of different types of bugs to live there. Yeah. It's like a zoo. You want this real biodiversity in yeah. your gut. My husband and I have just uh, written a kid's book. Oh, have you? Yes. Another book? Yeah, and it's called, <laughs> it's called There's a Zoo in My Poo. <laughs> and the idea is that we want to get kids actually going, I'm the zookeeper. Yeah. I'm in charge of these guys. I've yeah. got to look after them. Yeah. And that means I've got to feed them the right things. And I think that's true for adults as well. That yeah. It's making it very concrete like that is yeah. going to be really powerful. That's brilliant. I can't wait to read that. Yeah, yeah. I it's hilarious. It will help parents, I think, as well think yeah, about totally. it. Right? Yeah, totally. I know. And, and it's full of um, illustrations because my husband's a crazy illustrator. But it's also full of, you know, poos and bums and farts and yeah. mucus and all yeah. the things that kids love. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun doing that together. Oh, great. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Yeah, it's funny. But I think that idea that this is something very concrete, it's about your gut, you can change it really fast. Yeah. You just need to make those switches to your diet. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We're going to be starting with our new episodes next week from the conference, the Integrative and Personalized Medicine Conference. You're going to find the conversations there absolutely enlightening and ton packed full of tons of new research that we uh, dived into with uh, our distinguished guests. In the meantime, do check out the show notes where you can find out about Felice Jacker's book, Brain Changer, as well as signing up for the newsletter, Eat, Listen, Read, where I give you something to eat, something to listen to, something to read, and something to watch sometimes every single week. You can find that on thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash newsletter, and you can sign up for a free seven-day meal plan as well using that link. Until next time, I'll see you there. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 